Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, <clears throat> as we already asked earlier, um, we ask that we might uh, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your holy word. And so we ask that you would do that in us, um, that you would teach us, uh, and that you would transform us uh, through the Bible and through this reading. And we ask that you would, um, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would build us into a temple, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, saturated with reconciled peace. Show us what that means and then do that in us because we cannot do that ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, friends, like I said, we are looking at the uh, second half of that Ephesians reading, and this is the second week of Advent. Um, during Advent, we can ask a lot of different questions, but one of the questions that we ask is, why is it that Jesus came? Like, what was his aim? And if you look at verse 17, we said this last week, um, in verse 17, in our reading, it tells us why Jesus came. At least one reason Jesus came is that he came to preach peace. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus proclaimed peace into a terrible hostility, the hostility between uh, the Gentile community and the Israelite community. He pre proclaimed peace, brought reconciliation, and created within himself one new humanity. Now, this week, we want to look at that a little bit more closely and we're going to change the image a little bit. There's going to be a few different images that Paul uses for this new reconciled community. But I want, what I want to show you today is that Jesus came not only to stop hostility between the Gentile community and the Israelite community and bring reconciliation, but Jesus came to build a church, a community that's a temple of the peace which only God can give. 
Jesus came to build the church to be a temple of God. And you can see that in verse 21 at the end of our reading. Now, here's the thing with a temple. In the ancient world, a temples were hugely important. We don't often talk about temples, but back then, everybody talked about temples, and temples were important for everybody. And the reason that temples were important is that that's where you went to meet with your God, whichever God you might be serving. There would always be a temple where you could go and find out who that God is and what that God is like. And the Apostle Paul's uh, point in Ephesians is to say that the church of Jesus Christ, he's not saying that the church is a building or a physical temple. The Apostle Paul is saying that because of Jesus's work of reconciliation, stopping the hostility and bringing reconciliation between people who might otherwise have good reason to hate each other, because Jesus has done that, he has created now, not a physical temple, but a community, a group of people that we call the church. And the idea is that inside this community, the church, you get to experience what it is to have real reconciled peace with God. But then this community is also for those who are outside the community. This community is to be a place where people who are outside the community can come look at this community and find out who God really is. This is a community where people outside the community can come look at the community and um, find out what it means to have peace with God and then be invited into it. Or let me say it differently. Jesus came, he advented into this world to create the church, to be a temple in this world where peace with God was set on display for everyone to see and where anyone is invited to come into that community and enjoy that peace with God for themselves. Now, <clears throat> um, the community of the church, the people of God, in early Christianity, the community of Christians, the church, was one of the most compelling parts of the whole movement of Christianity. In fact, you can go back into uh, the early records after the Bible was written, after the New Testament was writ written, and you can find that people would look at the Christian community. They would look at the church, and they would look at the church and kind of say, wow, the church, this community of Christians is, is very, very strange, very, very different, but yet kind of different in a good way. Now, not everybody thought it was different in a good way. But a lot of people found when they looked at the church, they found something compelling, something attractive, something that made them ask the question, what is it that causes this community to be like it is? And maybe I should give a listen to their message. Let me give you an example of this. Um, we have a letter called the Letter to Diognetus. That's a great name. Um, and the letter to Dignatus was written about 100 years after the uh, letter to the Ephesians was written. So this is the, in the second century. And it describes, we don't know who wrote it, but this letter describes a Christian community and describes this Christian community in order for a non-believer uh, to understand what the Christians are on about. Let me read you just a little bit of this letter. It says this. Christians live in both Greek and barbarian cities. They follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. And yet at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkably and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. 
They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, and yet they endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and they have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They love everyone, but by everyone they are persecuted. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and yet they abound in everything. They are persecuted, and yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Now, I read that because in the early church, in the early days, in the Roman Empire, it was the Christian community, the church, that very often got people's attention. And they would look at the church, and they would realize that the church and the community of Christians were different different from their surrounding culture, but different in a good way. And it forced them to ask the question, what explains the quality of their fellowship? And it drew them in. The church acted like a temple, showing people what it looked like to have peace with God. Now, the reading that we're looking at today explains a little bit of why that could happen. And we're gonna look at it and we're going to try to understand what uh, Paul's vision for the church is this quality of fellowship with each other that becomes a temple for the world. Now, as soon as I talk about the church and the church being a compelling reality and things like that, I know it brings up tension for some people because for some of us, we look at the church today and it doesn't immediately compel us. In fact, for some of us, we look at the church today and it looks hypocritical. And for some of us, we may even be suspicious that the church perhaps is toxic. And if that's you, and if that's one of the questions or the objections that come up in your mind, then I'm going to ask you to keep that tension in the back of your mind. Because this reading that from Ephesians, Paul helps us diagnose some of what can be wrong within the contemporary church. And Paul's letter can help us chart a path to renewal. It can help us avoid hypocrisy and chart a straight path uh, towards being the community that Jesus wants us to be. So Jesus came to establish the church as a temple of the peace of God. And in our reading, I want to show you three things. In order to be a temple of the peace of God, we have to be, first of all, a reconciled family, a reconciled family with a new shared dignity. And that leads us to being a temple for the world. First of all, the church needs to be a reconciled family. Take a look at verse 17. It says, and Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right, now back up big picture. In the Bible, <clears throat> the thing that's wrong with the world is called sin. Many of you will know that. And one way to think about sin is this. Sin always causes an entropy of relationship or intimacy. Now, do you know what I mean by when I say entropy? Um, Entropy is when things gradually decline into increasing disorder. So like a star, right? A star starts off full of energy and then over time gradually cools, the energy runs out and uh, the, uh, the star falls apart and eventually dies. That's entropy, that decline into disorder. And sin always causes close relationships to fall into disorder and then eventually fall apart. Now, that's one of the things we were talking about last week. The background to this reading, you'll remember, is that the Gentile community and the Israelite community just hated each other. And the Apostle Paul, 
we saw this last week, analyzes that hostility. And he says that underneath the hostility between the Gentile community and the Israelite community is sin. Both Gentiles and Israelites are alienated from God. And that alienation from God uh, causes entropy for all their other relationships. It poisons all their other relationships. Now, we saw this last week. The only way to reverse that entropy is to inject a new energy or new order into the thing that's falling apart. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes and he, through his death and his resurrection, he reverses that entropy so that we can be reconciled to God. And as Gentiles and Israelites are reconciled to God, they become reconciled to each other as well. Okay, all that was, you know, previously in Ephesians. But this week, I want you to see this. Just like we saw that there were two alienations, alienation from God, which leads to alienation from each other. So now within the church, there needs to be two intimacies. There's an intimacy with the father and there's an intimacy with each other as siblings. Where do I get this from? Well, look at verse 16. Do you see how we can only be uh, reconciled to God in one body? And that one body there in verse 16 means the community of the church. We have to be reconciled together or we will not be reconciled. Or look at verse 18. We both, the Gentile community and the Israelite community, people who used to be enemies, we both have access to God in one spirit. What I want you to see is that all through this reading, Paul is linking our intimacy with God as our father with intimacy with each other as siblings in this new reconciled family. We used to have reasons to be enemies, but now we are reconciled siblings. And that intimacy between God and ourselves and intimacy bet between each other, those two things are linked so that if one is undermined, the other is undermined. And as one is strengthened, the other is strengthened. Uh, early Christians used to say this in a little bit more pithy, shocking way. They used to say this, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. I wonder how that strikes you. Um, my guess is that for a lot of us, that's not the way we think. And, and if that shocks you, then it may be because deep down, uh, we're all individualists. And very often, even Christians who have been Christians for a long time tend to think of the church as something that, that we can use to help our individual spiritual life. But very often we fail to adequately realize that we are to be a reconciled family where intimacy with God and intimacy with each other are inextricably linked. Um, let me tell you a story. Um, several years ago, or well, two or three years ago, um, I was in Jerusalem for a meeting of uh, Anglicans from around the world. And um, I ended up for some reason being a moderator at this particular meeting. And basically my job was to introduce the speakers. And I did a terrible job because what happened was <clears throat> I got up and I had to introduce an archbishop from Nigeria. And I had practiced his name and practiced his name and apparently practiced it wrong all along. And I completely decimated his name. I just completely mispronounced his name. And, and, and the whole, you know, hundreds of people started laughing at me, um, which was kind of them. But anyways, that's kind of near, neither here nor there. But after the meeting, I got talking to the speakers, the Nigerian archbishop and a theologian from Malaysia. And the three of us were talking. 
Now, the three of us were as far apart culturally as you can be. We're from all different equal, kind of equally spaced parts of the world, as far away as you can be. And yet, as we were talking, they asked me about you, about Emmanuel. And they were intrigued about Emmanuel. And they were, they were eager. They wanted to hear about you because they considered you to be part of their family. And then they asked if they could pray for me. And the Nigerian archbishop and the Malaysian canon theologian laid their hands on me and they began to pray for me, but not just for me, they also began to pray for you. And as they prayed, I knew in that moment that I was with family. I wasn't with strangers. I wasn't with people who were simply just culturally distant from me. I was with family. I knew that we were one united family in Jesus Christ. And I also knew something else. I knew that my brothers, through their prayers, were ushering me into the very presence of God. My brothers were taking me to my father. And I could sense in that moment, in an unambiguous way, how God's power and God's love and God's spirit was among us. And it was beautiful. And I share that with you, Emmanuel, because I want to remind you that the church of Jesus Christ, when it is a reconciled, intimate family, it is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing in its local expression, which is what we enjoy at Emmanuel but it's a beautiful thing also in its global expression. And I can't think of anything our world needs more than a transnational reconciled family with local outposts in every community who have been reconciled to God and therefore are growing into greater intimacy with each other. And especially growing into intimacy with people who they might otherwise have reason to hate. But that's the vision that the apostle Paul is setting before us, that we are to be a reconciled family and it's a vision worth pursuing. So the church is to be a reconciled family, intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, and those are always related to each other. But then as a reconciled family, we also gain a new dignity that we could never have otherwise. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but rather you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Okay, we just said that sin always causes an entropy of relationships, right? Well, sin also causes an entropy of dignity. What I mean is that when we're in sin, when we're alienated from God, uh, that alienation from God always makes us value other people less. Um, Sin always leads us to denigrate and dehumanize other people. But on the other hand, as we're reconciled to God, Jesus makes that entropy work backwards so that instead of denigrating other people, we become people who uh, cherish and love the people around us and especially uh, members of the church, members of our own family. Now, where do I get this from? Well, take a look at verse 19. Do you see the word citizen? Uh, Citizenship means many things, but part of it is citizenship is always a little bit about status and dignity. Uh, I've been an immigrant in two countries, Canada and the United Kingdom, and both countries treated me really, really well. But despite the fact that they treated me really, really well, I also knew that I did not have the same rights or the same status or the same dignity that the citizen had, at least not legally. But on the other hand, when you become a citizen, you end up sharing in the dignity of the nation. Uh, So for instance, in the ancient world, a Roman citizen shared the dignity of the Roman Empire. Today, an American citizen 
shares in the dignity of the United States. Well, keep that in your mind and look at Paul because Paul's saying that when you become a Christian, when you enter into this reconciled family of the church, you gain the dignity of a new citizenship. It's not a Roman citizenship. It's not an American citizenship. It's not a political citizenship. It's a, it's a citizenship that is greater than all of those things. You gain the dignity of citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now think about this for a second. Because if a citizen shares the dignity of the nation, then there is no higher dignity possible than the citizenship that comes from being a member of the kingdom of God. Because you share the dignity of God's own regime. Now, this is where we need to slow down and think about uh, one of the key ways the church often fails. One of the most common ways that the church fails in every day is that very often we fail to recognize the dignity of every single member of the church. Let me give you a really old example with tragic echoes to our own day. Um, 200 years ago, over 200 years ago, 1792, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, uh, both of them were African-American pastors. Uh, they walked into a church in Philadelphia and they knelt down to pray. Now, unbeknownst to them, they had inadvertently uh, knelt down in a pew that was apparently reserved for white people. It's a travesty that that was even uh, considered within the church. But right in the middle of praying, in the middle of the church service, uh, some of the leadership of the church came over to them, interrupted their prayers, and forced them to leave that pew. And it was humiliating, and it was a terrible moment. And they eventually left the pew, but they eventually left not only the pew, they eventually left the church and they went on to help establish um, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. And the uh, we can rejoice that the Lord has done amazing things through the AME movement. But Emmanuel, I want you to consider the tragedy of their expulsion. Now there's many reasons why it was a tragedy, but here's one, Richard Allen, and Absalom Jones were strangers, were, were not strangers to the church. They were members of the church. They were members of Christ's church. And they were citizens, therefore, not of a nation. They were citizens of a far greater reality. They were citizens of God's kingdom. And therefore, they bore transcendent dignity. But the tragedy is that the leadership at that local church failed to honor the dignity that God had bestowed upon them. They offended the dignity of the kingdom of God. They broke the intimacy of God's new reconciled family. And in breaking the intimacy of God's family, they undermined their own intimacy with God the Father. It's a tragedy. One of the early church, uh, uh, church fathers, Clement, when he talks about... Uh, uh, a breakage within the church, disunity within the church. He says, you are dismembering the very body of Jesus Christ when you do that. And that's what happened on this day. Now, I tell you that story, distant in the past though it is, because it's one example of a larger pattern that rolls down the years to our own day and is always has to be battled in every single church. And here it is. The church very often fails to honor the dignity of her own members. And some of us who are disillusioned with the church are disillusioned with the church precisely because you've seen this happen. 
Sometimes we see it happen in ethnic, cultural, and racial uh, interactions. Sometimes we see it happening between men and women within the church. It can happen in a lot of different ways. And every time it happens, it is an offense against the very foundations of the purpose for which Christ came, to build a reconciled family that bears a shared dignity. And so here at Emmanuel, we need to, uh, the, the way we respond to the, to the corruptions that we see within the church is we need to recognize it and name it and repent from it and return to the Bible's vision where each member of the church bears a dignity beyond imagining. We need to be a culture, Emmanuel, that pursues uh, uh, recognizing and cherishing the dignity of every single member. Because when that happens, we'll find ourselves that Jesus is building us into a temple. And when we fail to do that, we'll find ourselves undermining and repudiating some of the purpose for which Christ came. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, remember, says that Jesus is building the church to be a temple. And you remember what a temple is. Inside the temple, you are supposed to meet with God. So Jesus is building us to be a community where inside we get to enjoy intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. But remember that the temple is also for outsiders so that those outside can come and see and look at us and see what it means to know this God and to live in reconciled peace with, with this God. And therefore, when the church fails, when we fail to live as a reconciled family, when we fail to honor each other well, what happens is we misrepresent God to the world. And that ends up being a crime, not only against the world, it ends up being a crime against God. And so I guess that brings up a question, is, which is where we're gonna land. When you look at the great vision that Paul has for the church, and the great vision that Jesus has, and Jesus came to build this church to be a temple of peace with God, when you look at that vision, it asks the question or it demands the question, why does the church so often fail to live it out adequately? Why do we sometimes offend against the very vision that the Bible gives us for the church? And here's part of the answer. The church fails when we skip verse 21. Look at verse 21. Sorry, verse 20. The church has to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, focus on Jesus as the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part of a foundation. The whole building rests on the cornerstone so that if you take the cornerstone away, the whole church be, or the whole building becomes uh, unsettled and unstable and will begin to crumble. And part of the point here is that the church can only meet this vision when we rest on the cornerstone, that is to say, when we rest on Christ and not upon ourselves. So friends, if I were to tell you, hey, Emmanuel, rah, rah, go out and try real, real hard to be a united family uh, marked by intimacy and a culture of shared dignity uh, so that the whole world can look at us and see the reality of God. If I told you to go out and do that in your own strength, that would be ridiculous. It would be hopelessly idealistic. It would be naive and it would condemn us to almost certain futility and hypocrisy because we can't live up to that. But on the other hand, if we rest on Jesus, 
moment by moment and breath by breath. If we rest on Jesus as our cornerstone, then everything's different. Why is everything different? Because just like the temple is meant to rest upon a cornerstone, in the same way, the whole vision of the church rests on one single thing. The whole vision of the church rests on the peace which only Jesus can give. The minute we stop resting on Christ's reconciliation and we start resting on, I don't know, our own dignity or something about ourselves that make that inflate our pride or, 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 or our own cultural heritage or whatever the case may be, the minute we stop rec- uh, resting on Christ's reconciliation in that moment, the whole church begins to fall like a house of cards. The minute we stop resting on Jesus Christ, the whole church will be doomed to hypocrisy because we cannot live out this vision in our own strength. But on the other hand, when you rest on Christ alone, then our reconciliation with God will be constantly renewed. And as that reconciliation with God is constantly renewed, we'll have power to pursue this vision. Let me say it more specifically. Jesus is the cornerstone of the reconciled family. Don't ever forget this. Jesus is the son of God, but yet nevertheless, he left the intimacy of his family, of his father. And he came to us, he advented into this world when we were hostile to him. And on the cross, he was cut off from his father, cut off from that intimacy. Why? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he go through that? Well, friends, he was cut off from his father temporarily so that he could bring us to his father eternally. And Jesus builds the church by constantly bringing us back to that reconciliation. We have to taste that reconciliation daily to adequately live out this vision. Same thing with dignity and citizenship. Jesus is not merely a citizen of the kingdom of God. He's the heir to the throne. And yet, despite all that, he advented into this world and he was stripped of all his outward dignity. He was born in a manger As a child, he was a refugee. And later on, he was killed upon a cross. And Romans never crucified a Roman citizen because crucifixion was an offense against the dignity of Rome. And Israelites weren't supposed to crucify their own either. But Jesus suffered infinite indignity on the cross. Why? We suffered that indignity in order to give you the eternal dignity of being a citizen in God's kingdom. And he builds the church as he continually brings us back to that reconciliation. So that if we rely upon ourselves, then Emmanuel, I promise that we will fail and we will fall into all the corruptions we'd really like to avoid. But on the other hand, if Christ is our rest and our cornerstone, if we rest on his grace, then what will happen is as we continually come back to his reconciliation and as we are continually renewed in the peace which only he can give, then he will flood our hearts with love that will then overflow towards each other. We'll be a family of intimacy with the Father and intimacy with each other. Not perfect, but we'll continually be renewed as we continually come back to reconciliation. And then that intimacy will drive us to honor the dignity of God's kingdom in every single member of the church. And the more and more we rest on Christ, Jesus will build us to be a temple where inside we enjoy intimacy with the Father and those outside can look at us and say, what is going on there? Because they're different, but different in a good way. 
let me come in and see what is it that makes them to be a culture saturated with the peace of God. And in that way, Christ will use us to preach peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.